Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri country and would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I would also like to acknowledge the ongoing role that colonisation and racist regulation has had on First Nations, but also First Nations resilience and survival in continuing to connect and practice the oldest living culture in the world. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Lisa Parker, an honorary lecturer in the School of Pharmacy at the University of Sydney. Her research focuses on public health, ethics and policy, particularly on the influence of values, evidence and industry on healthcare policy and practice, including digital mental health technologies, which unfortunately we won't talk about today. Uh, Dr. Parker also has her feet close to the ground, currently working as a medical clinician in oncology. We discuss the concerning role that pharmaceutical companies can play in influencing decisions within hospital settings, as well as within consumer or patient groups. Dr. Parker's words are considered and thoughtful, and it leaves me in no doubt about the need to tighten regulation in this space. So please enjoy this episode, subscribe, and rate the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Uh, All right. Thank you so much, Lisa, for, for joining us today. Um, would you be able to explain, um, I guess one of the key questions we have in this podcast is why does regulation matter to you and your community? I mean, when you hear that question, um, how do you respond to it? Thanks so much, Simon. Um, I guess I'd just first like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation whose land I'm um, currently sitting on. Um, and why does regulation matter? Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri country and would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I would also like to acknowledge the ongoing role that colonisation and racist regulation has had on First Nations, but also First Nations resilience and survival in continuing to connect and practice the oldest living culture in the world. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Lisa Parker, an honorary lecturer in the School of Pharmacy at the University of Sydney. Her research focuses on public health, ethics and policy, particularly on the influence of values, evidence and industry on healthcare policy and practice, including digital mental health technologies, which unfortunately we won't talk about today. Uh, Dr. Parker also has her feet close to the ground, currently working as a medical clinician in oncology. We discuss the concerning role that pharmaceutical companies can play in influencing decisions uh, within hospital settings, as well as within consumer or patient groups. Dr. Parker's words are considered and thoughtful, and it leaves me in no doubt about the need to tighten regulation in this space. So please enjoy this episode, subscribe, and rate the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Uh, All right. Thank you so much, Lisa, for for joining us today. Um, Would you be able to explain, um, I guess, one of the key questions we have in this podcast is 
why does regulation matter to you and your community? I mean, when you hear that question, um, how do you respond to it? Thanks so much, Simon. Um, I guess I'd just first like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation whose land I'm um, currently sitting on. Um, and why does regulation matter? And I guess um, it matters to me as a member of the public and it also matters very much to me as a member of the health profession uh, and, uh, and medical research um, uh, community. Uh, pharmaceutical medicine is very highly regulated and health practice is very highly regulated and I think that's just super important and the regulation of pharmaceuticals has a real focus on what we call in Australia the quality use of medicines and that has a particular meaning that phrase quality use of medicines and it's all about um, making sure that we're using safe products products that are beneficial low risk of harm and products products that are kind of cost effective overall and I think the reason I think that's important is because medical practice and use of medicines is really complex and it's also quite emotive and it's hard I think for us as members of the public to kind of be well informed enough and to be kind of removed from the emotion enough that we can judge the likelihood of benefit the risk of harm and the you know the kind of financial toxicity I suppose um, so I think I think it's really important that we have structures in place that help us um, with that decision making and um, to protect us really from using products that are unsafe products that are not useful and products that are just expensive unnecessarily expensive so that's why I think it matters so much I just wondered if it might be helpful for you um, and your listeners for me to talk a little bit about the regulation of medicines in Australia because there's quite a lot of different aspects to it um, and it's something that you know even as a medical practitioner I wasn't really that aware of until I started doing research in this area so um, in, in Australia we have a, um, a regulatory body called the TGA or Therapeutic Goods Authority and they make sure they sit and look at all the medicines that, um, that drug companies um, seek approval for and they make sure that they're safe and fit for purpose so that there's good quality control on them um, they they license pharmacies they license supply chains and exporters and importers and they have regulations around marketing and advertising and all that sort of stuff so that's the tga government body there's a separate government body called pharmaceutical benefits advisory committee and they look at the government subsidy of medicines and that's so many of those medicines that the TGA approves will be subsidised by the government, but not all of them. The government doesn't subsidise everything. And then there's a, another body which regulates doctors and other health practitioners to say, yes, you know, you can prescribe this or no, you can't prescribe this. So there's a lot of different regulatory arms and they work together but independently. And I think it's really important that both each of those bodies is independent from the industry that is supplying the drugs um, to reduce the influence, possibility of influence from from those industries. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I, I guess some of these groups that, that might be involved in that are, and I know this is a, a focus of some of your your recent um, your recent research is is consumer or patient groups. So if I understand these patient groups uh, are intended to provide advice on service quality, contribute to guidelines for like best practice in healthcare or support um, consumers or patients directly. Um, firstly, is that an accurate sort of portrayal of, of those groups or do they have a, did you find other roles that they play? So 
But what did you find out about um, pharmaceutical companies and how they influence patient or consumer groups like this? Yeah, so, so patient groups are really important and we've seen a growth over the, the last few decades of patient group um, numbers and sizes and, and their influence. And, and they have a huge role to play in supporting patients, um, informing patients about their diseases and what, what they might do to benefit connecting patients with each other and so on and so forth. And they're often quite involved in research and they support and fund a lot of research and they um, initiate research that, that is useful, they think is useful for their members. Um, and they also do quite a lot of advocacy. Um, so they lobby governments about um, uh, those, those bodies that I talked about earlier. So they lobby the TGA to approve drugs. They lobby the, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Council to subsidise drugs. Um, and so they, they are um, increasingly powerful in all of those roles. And I think, therefore, it's super important that they are also very independent because you wouldn't want those patient groups to be compromised by industry funding because then they might selectively tell patients about their sponsors' drugs or um, be silent about safety issues um, on drugs that their sponsor, their, their funders were, um, were producing. So you really don't want them to be compromised, obviously. And patient groups are super aware of that. They really are aware that they, their, their role, I suppose, they see their role as being an independent voice and supporting patients. But at the same time, we know from a lot of research around the world that increasingly patient groups are struggling for funding. You know, there's a lot of them. Where's the money coming from? There's only so much money that people, the public, are willing to fund. Mm. Um, and a lot of them are funded, um, at least partly by donations from pharmaceutical companies so you know that kind of makes sense patient groups have some aligned interests with companies and that often patient groups are keen for access to new drugs but they're not always going to be aligned so they might not be aligned for instance um, in talking very loudly about safety issues about new drugs you know patient groups might be wanting to talk about that and pharmaceutical companies might not want quite a lot of that so much conversation around those things and they might have quite different views and ideas about pricing of drugs and so on so so they do have some differences so we were interested in in looking and talking to people who work in those patient groups um, asking them well we know there's often interactions with with um, pharmaceutical company people what's the nature of those interactions how, how do you maintain your independence what do you think you know are there some issues around that and what, what's going on so it was a super interesting study really really interesting. I talked to about um, nearly 30 people around Australia who worked in those patient groups and asked them about, you know, what do you do? How do you talk to a patient, uh, to, to industry reps and so on and, and, you know, what's going on really? And, and yeah, they were very aware um, of the importance of, of being independent. They, they were also aware that, you know, the companies are not just giving away money for free, that it was a, a kind of a transaction and that there was an expectation that the patient groups would, would provide something in return and they were prepared to do that. And, and the kinds of things that they said they provided in return were um, maybe some marketing opportunities. So they might give um, pharmaceutical companies the opportunity to speak to doctors. Um, you know, they might set up um, some meetings. They might collaborate with pharmaceutical companies on advocacy, lobbying governments. Um, they might 
be prepared to talk to patients. Um, the, the patient group talked to their members about clinical trial opportunities and things like that. Um, so there was there was definitely um, some some give and take there. Um, we thought that um, from what we found that some uh, groups were perhaps at risk of being unduly influenced. So most people uh, that I spoke with, whether or not they were being funded, were aware that um, it would be a good idea to have some rules and maybe some internal group policies about how they interact with patient groups. But not all of them had the same rules and policies, guidelines or whatever, um, and not all of them um, stuck to the ones that they had. So um, the kinds of things that people talked to me about were um, some people said, well, we never accept just one company um, funding us. Uh, but other people said, well, we try not to accept just one company funding us, but you know, if it's only one company offering the money, well, what can you do? So there's that kind of thing. Um, some people said we never let drug companies kind of initiate an idea, uh, we only ever let them, you know, we, we pitch the idea to them and they say, yes, they'll fund it or no, they won't. Whereas other companies said, well, you know, if a company comes to us with an idea that we think is okay, then we'll accept that idea. Um, some of them would never mention brand names and others would be relatively happy to mention brand names. So there was a lot of um, difference, which made us think, well, there's, there's not a lot of consensus here around what um, is the right thing to do and what keeps you um, at low risk of being influenced by companies. I guess one of the big things that, that we kind of came away thinking too was that the, the companies that are providing money to patient groups are the ones that have new drugs and a marketing budget around those new drugs, so drugs that are under patent. So the, the patient groups that are getting funded by industry are the ones whose interests align with those particular companies. So if you've got a patient group that is interested in a particular disease and there's new drugs for that disease, then they'll be getting money. If you've got a patient group who's interested in a disease where there are no new medicines or this is more about talking therapies or something, for instance, then they won't be getting any industry money from anybody. So they might actually just fold. <laughs> so it kind of ends up that the, the patient voice is kind of really um, mainly talking about what the current industry um, interests are. And that, you know, that kind of is, is, of course, when you think about it, that makes sense. But it, it does mean that we're not necessarily hearing what's important to patients. We're just hearing what's important to the industry. So I think, you know, that, that worried us, um, you know, maybe to the best of everybody's intentions, but kind of as a sec at a sector level, at a patient group sector level, the group, the sector is not necessarily um, talking about what's important to, to all people. No, and that's, um, that, that, that really came through as I was reading your research, the enormous variability amongst different individuals and, and groups. And, and like you say, the, the, the voice kind of maps onto the, um, the economic interests that that sit behind that and it, it does beg a question for some some folk who are um, most marginalized for a range of reasons may well be suffering from um uh whether you call them illnesses diseases or um you know problems that are might even be structural in nature um, and, and aren't necessarily resolved um through uh 
through some some kind of pharmaceuticals as well. I imagine there's doesn't sound like there's a great deal of funding for um, from pharmaceutical companies to to deal with uh, you know the uh, social determinants of mental health or, or health or whatnot. Funnily yeah. enough, of course yeah. not. <laughs> and why would there be? You know, like yeah. it all kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But, but as a public, do we want? the commercial determinants of health to be having such a big influence over our lobbying bodies or would we rather uh, as a public be be keen to give more sort of resources to our, our, our health patient community um, uh, health consumer bodies who are interested in, in in a more holistic approach I guess. And was that something raised by um, participants as well as a solution that, that they, um, to, to some of these tensions? It's very difficult. I mean, you know, yes, it was by some, but others were very confident that they were able to withstand any um, um, influences by industry. And I guess, you know, as an individual patient group, you are perhaps your remit is not to look at the whole patient group sector. Your remit is to look after your cohort. So it's not until you step back and say, well, actually the whole of the public, what are we doing here? And there are bodies, patient group, or they call more likely perhaps health consumer group bodies across Australia that have that more holistic view. So most of the states and territories have one of those and there's a, um, a broad umbrella group uh, in Australia as well. And so those bodies, which typically would get a little bit of government funding, do provide a bit more of that holistic view. And um, and they had they typically don't accept patient, uh, sorry, accept industry money. So, you know, it was interesting hearing their views as well. Um, uh, and I think it's a, a credit to our government that they do fund those um, health services bodies, health consumer bodies, and I'm really hopeful that they'll continue funding them or maybe even increase their funding because I think that's 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 what we need to, to keep um, a more holistic view of, of the whole process. Yeah, that's 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 so interesting because um, yeah, I'm, I'm aware there's like the you know, uh, well, there's a national mental health consumer and carer forum. I work in mental health. I, uh, there is a national health, just health consumer equivalent of that, I, I believe. Um, but it, it is a strange um, situation you find yourself in where the, the market is deciding what, what is important and what is not important. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe more funding and uh, for those, those organizations to play more of a, of a leadership leadership role as well for other patient and consumer mm. groups in this mm. space. yeah i think that's super important that leadership role so mm. some of the things that we we spoke to about those patient groups particularly the smaller ones they're like well we don't what what, what should we do we do, what do we do i don't know what to do how would we know you know we spend all our time trying to fundraise and we just haven't got the manpower or the resources to to draw up guidelines or to really know how to protect ourselves best um so there are some um guidelines in Australia that are co-produced by um, a big group called the Consumers Health Forum of Australia, which is a, one of those big umbrella groups, but they're also co-badged by pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we were keen to do, <coughs> excuse me, was to, you know, I think there's room for a, a, an independent guideline to help those smaller groups and really be quite granular about 
you know, these are the kinds of policies, these are the kinds of values, these are the kinds of practices that you could think about and talk about. And here's maybe a template and you can fill in where you think you want to be on that template mm. and make that public to your membership. Um, and, and let's talk about it and, and discuss it. So we held a, um, it was very good, just, just before the pandemic last year in March, we held a, um, an Australian kind of seminar. We had people from patient groups from all over Australia and we all came to Sydney and had a talk about exactly those kinds of things and we had speeches from various people and we came up with with a kind of some sort of start of the conversation really some maybe some values and maybe some practices um, and we published that and that was with Consumers Health Forum Australia and also New South Wales Health Consumers and so that's all on their New South Wales Health Consumers website and you know, it'd be great to see that go forward and have more of a, um, an independent patient group produced um, resource for, for all the patient groups around Australia about how to take this forward. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll make sure we put uh, links to, to, to that resource in the, in the show notes. Um, so you, you've, you've really unpacked there, I guess, um, some of the, um, the ways in which pharmaceutical companies can um, can intervene or influence, um, and like you say, it's a logical extension of market incentives. Um, uh, you know, consumer or patient groups. Um, you, you've done similar work or a similar study where you examine the influence of companies on um, drug and therapeutic committees. And if I understand it right, these are committees that are they're kind of located within health services, and they determine you know what treatments are permitted to be used within a, that particular health service firstly again am i accurately framing their their role and and maybe how does that sit within those broader um, um organizations or institutions maybe you, you you signaled earlier um but what did you find about the you know pharmaceutical company's ability to influence in that setting yeah um so again um i learned a lot uh, researching this <laughs> and again something that even as a health professional medical practitioner I didn't really have a huge idea about how this all works you know in practice until I started researching it so so these are groups called um, drug and therapeutics committee or DTCs um, and they they typically um, have a role overseeing um, medicines or pharmaceuticals within the public system. So in Australia, um, public hospitals are state funded. So it's all a state based system. Um, uh, unlike those other bodies I talked about before, like the TGA or PBS, they're all nationally national bodies. So outpatient stuff is all national and state-based health is in state. <laughs> it's a bit of Thank you. Yeah, federalism always makes things easy, doesn't it? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so in in Australian public hospitals, um, there's oversight. The, med- the care and the and the medicines are all free of charge for inpatients, you know. And the oversight of, of those medicines is at the, either at the institutional level, so the individual hospitals or area health services, used to be called area health services now, I think it's called local health districts, um, or in, in many places around Australia, it's a state-based committee, um, particularly in the, in the smaller population uh, states and territories. So those committees have oversight. They, they often... Um, are multidisciplinary, so there'll be doctors, there'll be pharmacists, there'll be nurses, and so on. Maybe a consumer sometimes on those committees, and they'll talk about and, and make decisions about what medicines should be um, 
available uh, for use in their institution or their area. So they'll think about what medicines are held on formulary or you know what, what's in stock. Um, they'll they'll make they'll write guidelines for when you should be allowed to use those medicines. Um, and they'll maybe consider special approval. So some medicines are um, not available for routine use, but, but they'll consider them for a one-off occasion. Maybe those are new medicines that haven't yet been kind of approved for use, or maybe they're really, really expensive medicines that you always want to think about very carefully, or maybe they're um, uh, free samples or uh, patient access programs run by companies or something like that. So those committees will, will make um, decisions about all of those things. And again, you want that committee to be independent of the industry. You don't really want the industry kind of influencing that decision making. So we we talked to people who sat on those committees in New South Wales um, um, and talked to them about all in what ways might you interact with the pharmaceutical companies, in what ways, what are your processes and how might or might not the pharmaceutical companies be able to influence those processes. Um, and are there any risks and what, you know, what, what do you think about all of that? Um, so that was interesting. Um, and the people that we spoke to, again, were quite aware of the importance of being independent and aware of the risks associated with um, potential uh, influence from industry pharmaceutical companies. And they did, I guess, you know, speaking to all the people, we, 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 we came up with, I suppose, a few areas that we thought showed some perhaps potential risks um, where there were risks of those committees being influenced by companies. So for instance, um, in order for the committees to think about putting a new drug on their formulary, that had to be, it was an application process and, and the, the kind of idea was that a, a clinician would say, well, there's a new product, we really want to use it, this is the reasons why we want to use it, these are the kind of evidence behind it. So committee, hey, would you have a look at this and, you know, let us know if we can stock this in our hospital. Um, and that should be coming from the clinician and preferably a senior clinician who knows what they're talking about. And then the committee would ideally go away and look at all the evidence around that, the safety, the benefits, so on and so forth. But actually what we found was that sometimes the drug rep would say to a clinician, hey, we've got this new drug. How about I fill out a little paperwork? How about I give you a pack of evidence and you can just submit it to the committee and that'd be great, wouldn't it? And that was happening. So, you know, that's, that's not ideal. Um, no. Sometimes the people making those applications had industry funding. Sometimes the people on the committees had industry funding. And, you know, a lot of doctors get industry funding, but they weren't always declaring it. It wasn't always... Um, obvious to everybody who's making these decisions that there were people being funded. Um, but also, interestingly, there were some situations where medicine access was, was just bypassing the committee altogether. So drug companies might write to a particular department or a particular clinician or visit the department or clinician and say, you know, we've got these free samples, here you go, why don't you give those a try? And usually the policy is that the free samples go to the pharmacy department the committee has a think about them and decides whether they want them. Because if you're starting somebody off with a free sample, you want to be confident that it's a good product. But sometimes those free samples didn't go to the committee. Um, sometimes um, there were other programs that the pharmaceutical, that the industries were um, 
offering um, these called so-called access programs, like compassionate access programs, which are you know, often super important, but they're often time limited. So a company might say, yeah, we'll give you, you know, free access or cheap half price access to these really expensive drugs um, for the next six months. You know, and that seems like a really great thing, but what if it gets to six months and the company says, well, actually we can't give you any more. And what if um, the hospital can't afford it? Or, you know, that just doesn't seem to be the right thing. Or sometimes the companies might say, you know, we'll give you cheap access to these products as long as you don't stock the competition products. It just it doesn't seem to be the right the way you would want committees to be making decisions. You know, so there were a few issues with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just there are a few issues. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and also, and I think it's no secret, but um, there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies and reps that are. Um, are giving freebies to doctors and you know it used to be in the back in the day that they might fund holidays for doctors and their families and that's not happening anymore but there are still smaller scale um, examples of that so they might fund people to go to conferences and it's important that doctors go to conferences but you know if they're relying on a drug company to pay for it then potentially that's influencing how they use those drug company drugs and again you, you don't really want that to be the reason that your clinician is prescribing those drugs. They fund lunches, you know, in-house lunches, um, out-of-house dinners. So, and, and it's not always disclosed. Um, yeah, so there were a few things still happening there and committees were aware of some of them, they weren't aware of others. And I think it would be great to uh, just add to that conversation and, and encourage people to talk a little bit more about that and be more transparent about um, who's being funded and what for. And are there God? So, you know, we spoke a bit about um, the, the patient or health consumer groups and that um, maybe there's some preliminary guidance that yourself and others have put out, but more needs to be done. Is there, are there sort of minimum standards for how these committees need to operate? And um, so, and if so, you know, there's obviously some compliance issues there with meeting those standards, but, but are there any? Well, there's guidance. Yeah, there's yeah. definitely guidance. Um, but, but you know, I think there's room for more conversation about that kind of stuff. Um, and some of it's not within the remit of the committees either. So, for instance, the thing about having pharmaceutical reps coming into the hospitals, maybe sitting in the tea rooms and chatting to doctors, maybe going to lunchtime meetings um, and maybe doing a little spiel before the lunchtime meeting, maybe providing the coffee or the lunch or whatever. That sort of thing is not within the remit of the committee. They, they, they can't regulate against that. So that, might, that will be a hospital policy or a state policy. And, you know, I, I'd encourage people to re revisit that policy and maybe say, well, you know, maybe we don't want the reps in the hospitals talking to the clinicians, or maybe maybe there needs to be some more regulation around that, and maybe only under these circumstances, maybe only if it's senior clinicians, or maybe not at all, or whatever, and so forth. I think more conversation about that. Yeah. I think there are often policies around um, committees declaring financial um, relationships with with companies, but it doesn't always happen at every meeting that it might change and, and maybe they don't keep maybe it's not updated um, so I think there's more that can be done there mm. um, hospitals 
um, don't necessarily have independent people coming to talk to them about new products. So they might rely on the reps coming to talk to them to tell them about the new drugs. And again, that's not in the committee's remit to say, let's fund um, lunches for doctors if it's really important for them to come and listen to new education, or, or let's fund independent um, education about new products. The committees don't can't don't have that sort of resource. So that's again, that's hospitals saying or being aware of the risk of influence from companies. Mm -hmm. And there's good evidence to show that even one small lunch can influence the way that prescribers prescribe, you know. Um, and I, I think you don't really want your doctor making a decision based on who gave them lunch. You want your doctor making a decision based on, you know, what's the best thing for me. So I, I'd like to see more conversation and discussion about that. Yeah, absolutely. I have this. I used to um, do do. Uh, I used to be a non legal advocate for people who were experiencing um, involuntary mental health treatment, um, and I was later doing a project within mental health services um, about um, uh, supported decision making, which is like a model of decision making where you support the the consumer or client themselves to make their own decisions. And I just remember um, going into um, into a particular service to um, to to do some training. They're like, oh, we've already um we've already got some training on this, and they they opened up this big box of all these goodies, and there was like this um, iPad um, or specialist made iPad, not an actual iPad, in case Apple's listening. Um, uh, and it was how to do supported decision making, um, and it was a, a pharmaceutical funded um, um, like kind of tablet. Um, that showed how you could prescribe things, but within a supported decision-making framework. It never actually included an option not to prescribe a medication. Um, uh, and I, I just, it was so well put together. It was so persuasive. And I mean, from my perspective, and, and, and I found medications have been hugely helpful uh, to myself and, and a range of other people, but it really concerned me um, about the influence that, um, yeah, that, that could have on, on clinician prescribing behaviour. Yeah, and look, we all think, you know, we all think we're immune and it's only a sandwich and, of course, it's fine. Of course, it's not going to influence me and, and the products are good anyway. You know, why does it matter? But I, I think, you know, if it didn't work, the companies wouldn't be spending the money on it, right? Like it's got to work Yeah. Uh, at least some of the time for at least some of the people. And I don't think we should all assume that we're all going to be immune because we're not. Surely no. we're not. No. So I just think we just need to be a bit sensible and smarter about this and think, you know what, we owe it to our patients. We're not that special that we need someone to pay for our lunch. Uh, we should just be doing this under our own steam, I think. Um, <laughs> that, that's my view. And uh, anyway, I, it, it's, a, it's, it's tricky. So uh, there's a lot of things that are changing in this field. And I think one of the things that's changed a lot is um, increased transparency about who's paying what to where. So in Australia, for instance, um, the industry has it's a self-regulatory process and they um, there's an umbrella body called Medicines Australia and they kind of um, uh, have a code of conduct that all their member organisations, so the pharmaceutical companies that belong to that group, they all have to abide by that code of conduct. And the code of conduct sets out certain uh, prescriptive rules about how to interact and how not to interact with patient groups or clinicians or whatever. And they also say you have to um, 
release all the information about who you're giving money to and what for and um, when and all that sort of stuff. But it's um, there's a few issues with it. So it's it the companies just release PDFs every six months and it's pretty hard to trawl through all of that. So it would be much better if it was um, released in a way that that you could search as an individual. And it's not compulsory to belong to that patient group uh, to that umbrella group. So not all drug companies are members, so then they don't have to abide by that code of conduct. Um, in America, um, it's mandated by law that all drug companies have to provide that information. And then it's um, there are groups that convert that into a searchable database. So anybody can go along and type in the um, clinician's name or a patient. They don't do patient groups, but they can type in clinician's name and see who they're getting money from and how much. And I think that's useful. I think transparency is important. Yeah. Um, so what I'd love to see in Australia is that it becomes legal um, and that it continues to include patient groups so that um, we can all see what's going on. But I think also as patient groups could perhaps be a bit more transparent and put on their website who's giving them money, how much money they're giving, what percentage of their uh, group organisation's income comes from pharmaceutical industry, what the money's used for. Um, you know, I think... And that should be accessible to people who aren't members. So it shouldn't be behind the kind of login. It should just be available, I think. What's their policy around interacting with industry so that so that public who are thinking about joining that patient group or using those resources can, can make their own decisions about whether or not they think there's a bit too much industry money floating around. And health professionals who are thinking of um, directing patients to that patient group can also read through all of that and make their own decisions. Um, physicians, you know, should, there should be a searchable database um, with all of the drug company money uh, data on it um, that we can look through and, and see where, where who's getting the money. So that institutions, for instance, can look at their employees and say, well, you know, these doctors are getting maybe quite a lot more money than anybody else. And is there a good reason for that? And if there's a good reason, well, that's fine. But if there's not a good reason, what does that mean? And yeah, I just think a little bit more transparency and oversight would be useful for um, for everybody in, in that area. Usually, and I'm sure that's really popular at a conversation starter for you at some of those lunches. You know, and I think I would love to see a bit more education um, in the medical profession about you know the reality of the risk of influence like I said before we all think we're immune but let's let's talk a bit more about the evidence that shows um that that, that maybe we're not immune <laughs> all yeah. of the time um and maybe we should think twice about accepting that industry uh, funded lunch um, but yeah that, you know that doesn't always make me a popular colleague at work <laughs> Well, this is the unpopular podcast, so you're, you're at the right place. Um, but, but you're right. I think transparency at the very least is a first step, you know, that, I mean, it's, it's surprising that a lot of, you know, the, um, the things you mentioned that we don't have here. Um, and, and um, yeah, transparency is, is the first step in um, even us understanding what the issues are, let alone beginning to, to regulate them more meaningfully. So, yeah, that's crucial. I guess when, when you when you talk through both the influence on consumer groups and on drug and therapeutic committees, it kind of looks like a bit of a, a wild west out there uh, to me. And, and I'm wondering, what do you think that um, uh, it says about the oversight of these processes, both you know the influence of pharmaceutical companies on consumer groups and also on drug and therapeutic committees? 
I guess I, I don't think I would agree with you that it's a wild west. I think it is still very tightly regulated, and I think that's a really good thing. But I think there is always room for improvement. Um, so um, yeah, you know, I think uh, it would be great to have a bit more conversation around this. But look, we've we've got a reasonable setup in Australia, and certainly other countries don't have the luxury of, of some of the things that we've got. I mean, we don't have a legal mandate about transparency, and I'd like to see that, but at least we have some transparency, and at least that transparency includes patient groups where it doesn't always in other parts of the world. So, you know, I think there's some pros and cons about what's going on in Australia, but, but I'd like to see, I'd like to see legal um, discussion around mandates for transparency. Mm. I'd like to see a little bit more discussion around policies in public hospitals about who we accept, you know, what kind of marketing we accept in our hospitals and, and when and why and what's the value of it and what are the risks associated with it uh, and, and who's overseeing it and, and what should we do around that. So, yeah, um, there's, and I'd like to see more in, in um, the junior medical um, education space and, and even the medical student space, just increasing the awareness around the evidence for um, risks of influence. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think there's room for improvement. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you say, around training, I, I studied psychology uh, myself, and we, you know, we learn a lot about you know evidence-based practice and whatnot. But um, it does, the training often you you receive isn't put within the sort of political and social context that you're likely to practice in. Um, you know, so you, you learn about evidence-based practices, these three pillars of, I can't, I can't actually remember what the three pillars are, but I remember the, the shortest pillar was patient involvement though, because we didn't learn about that one. Um, but the, um, you know, you, you never really learned about the kind of the practical um, environment that you're likely to, to have to use that, those skills um, mm. and where they're going to be pressured and rub up against these kind of institutional or financial, you know, influencing processes. So, yeah. And I think it's the same for patient groups. As I was saying, you know, some of the big, really well-resourced patient groups think about this a lot and they, they, you know, have policies and ideas, but there are many smaller patient groups that just don't have capacity for this kinds of, thinking they might not be aware of the evidence, they might not know what's going on, they might not know, you know, our group at Sydney Uni has translated some of that um, uh, data about um, industry funding of doctors and patient groups. And we, we have created a searchable database that, that is useful for the, for the groups that do, um, do abide by that code of conduct. But, you know, how, people might not be aware of that, patient groups might not be aware of that. So, you know, some of the things we've done over the years is have some um, education of patient groups about risks associated with industry interactions. I know um, Health Consumers New South Wales is looking at maybe putting together a webinar or some kind of education pack that gives patient groups some of those resources as well ongoing. And, and I just think that's so important. I mean, we can't just expect people to know this stuff. We, we should talk about it. We should educate. We should discuss um, and share share resources, ideally amongst each other without industry kind of driving it, <laughs> which is yeah. typically what's happened in the past. Yeah, well, they're filling a void, aren't they? You know that. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and that makes that makes sense, like like you say. But um, th there's a role for um, ideally some government funded kind of processes or or greater mm -hmm. processes to to maybe fill that void.
Now, what's the call to action? So, so if you're, um, um, you know, maybe if you're a member of a consumer group, if you're a clinician or you're just a member of the general public today, what's one thing that um, you want them to, to go away and do after listening to you today? So I guess, I guess it's, yeah, so members of the public who are thinking about using patient groups, maybe, um, or who are members of patient groups, maybe look on the website for what's, you know, who's funding them and why. And if the information's not there, then maybe you can plug the name of that patient group into some of the university resources that we've got about and see if you can find out who's publishing. Or, or better still, why don't you email your patient group and say, why can't I find this information? Why isn't it easily accessible, you know, at one click um, to tell me what's going on? So I think that's important for um, from, from members of the general public. So people who are running patient groups, um, have a look at some of the um, resources that were prepared um, you know, by other patient groups in that seminar that, that we participated in. Talk to the people at Health Consumers New South Wales about um, what they might be doing in the future and Consumers Health Forum about uh, independent resources, see if you can get some templates or some advice there. And if you're a clinician or a health professional, Maybe, again, check those patient groups, see who's funding them, and maybe think twice about accepting that lunch. (laughs) Bring your own lunch. Bring your own lunch. (laughs) That's, um, that's, uh, I think... That's a good a good note to end on. So food for thought, no pun intended there for all of you clinicians out there. Lisa, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. I really appreciated talking with you. Thanks very much, Simon, and all the best.